James chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. There's a a skit that I've seen recently, uh, which a comedian named Bob Newhart plays a counselor. You could find it online. I think it's an old Mad TV skit, which I never watched Mad TV, but I found this video and thought it was very funny and instructive in many ways. A woman comes in and tells him she's afraid of being buried alive in a box. She's claustrophobic. She doesn't feel safe in tunnels or small places, or even her own house, because it's kind of boxy, she says. So the counselor says, after listening a little bit, he says, I'm I'm going to give you two words. I'm going to say two words to you right now, and I want you to listen very carefully. Then I want you to take these words out of the office with you and incorporate them into your life. She takes out a pen, gets ready to write. Oh, you don't need a pen. Just listen. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Stop it. Stop doing that. And she says, I'm sorry, what? And he says, stop it. Don't do it anymore. I can't imagine. Or you want to go through life scared all the time, afraid of being trapped in a little place? It sounds terrifying. Just stop it. And she is full of confusion and doesn't know what to do. Well, the point I think that we can gain from that is if we're not careful in reading Scripture and if we're not careful in reading James here, we might think that he's giving that sort of instruction. Just simply start doing this. Stop doing this. Just to impress upon us certain behaviors that we should and shouldn't be doing. Stop being so quick to speak. Stop being so quick to get angry. Start listening better. Enough said. But if we read James carefully, we'll see that what he's doing here is connecting his instructions to a deeper reality that what is needed isn't simply behavior change, but is heart change. We saw last week that the gospel makes a radical change in the lives of those who receive it. God gives the new birth through the preaching of the gospel. So what this means is that the gospel, the message of Christ crucified for sinners and risen from the dead, changes every part of a person. His thoughts, his desires, the intentions and motives of his heart, his loves. And throughout the letter of James, he wants to show us how the gospel changes, in particular, our relationships with other people. Many, many times we might have the tendency to see righteous living or righteousness as a kind of uh, Jesus and me sort of relationship. And, and when we begin to think in that way, we think righteousness is simply all about my spiritual disciplines, about prayer and reading the Bible. And while I would encourage you to be consistent in reading the Bible in praying, um, meditating on God's word, James points to ri- the righteous life as something which is vitally entwined with the lives of others. And really, Jesus and Paul in the whole Bible show us 
that an essential part of righteous living has to do with how we relate to other people, which is why we see all the commands in Scripture in the New Testament about one another, bearing with one another, loving one another, forgiving one another. People in our families, people in our churches, people we encounter every day in different situations. And the key to all of this is that the gospel is what produces this fruit of righteous living. The gospel is what changes how we relate first to God and then how we relate to others. Nothing else will produce this righteous life. Only the gospel will as we receive it with repentance and faith. So I think this is James's message to us in these verses. So listen to this main idea. The righteous life God desires for his people is produced by repentance and faith. The righteous life God desires of His people is produced by repentance and faith. Therefore, we must be zealous in uprooting sin, repentance. We must be zealous in uprooting sin and receiving the gospel. And I'm I'm speaking to Christians. We must be zealous in this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's law shows us what righteousness looks like. And it shows us we haven't measured up to it. And in this way, the law drives us to Christ for rescue. But after we have been born from above, after we've been regenerated, made new, after we've turned from our sin and trusted Christ to save us, God again calls us to righteousness. He calls us who belong to Him to live lives for His glory. So have you heard of the Heidelberg Catechism? If not, it gives us a helpful uh, framework for understanding our own lives as Christians. The outline of the Heidelberg Catechism is basically guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt comes from seeing our own sin and rebellion against God. We, We see how we have broken His law and we feel the weight of our own guilt. And then God, we see that God sends His Son... Not because of anything that we've done. While we were yet sinners, He sent Christ to die for us. We see His grace covering our guilt. And then we are moved in gratitude to live for God's glory in all that we do. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. But how do we nurture this righteous life which God desires from His people? Do we just work it up within ourselves? Do we just... You know, put our nose to the grindstone and work harder to make sure that we're doing like we're supposed to be doing. If we're living in sin, do we just stop it? Are we able to do that? The answer James gives us is that this righteous life God desires for us will be produced as we return to Him again and again and again in a life of repentance and faith towards God. So I want us to consider these three truths from these verses. First, that God desires righteousness from His people. God desires righteousness from His people. Second, one aspect of this righteousness God desires from His people is humility towards others. One aspect of this righteousness is humility toward others. And then three, the righteous life that God requires is produced through repentance and faith. So first notice that God desires righteousness from His people. We're going to get to verse 19, but first notice what James says in verse 20. 
Because human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. In other words, the reason James gives uh, for why his readers should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger is because getting angry doesn't produce righteousness. And righteousness, evidently for James, is something that we're aiming for. It's something we're after. We want to be righteous. Uh, And this is also something God desires from us. It doesn't produce the righteousness God desires. So God desires righteousness from His people. You've probably heard the term, the righteousness of God, used in the New Testament. Paul uses it often to refer to the righteousness God gives to His people through faith. So it's the idea of this word called imputation. uh, That when a person trusts in Christ to save him, God imputes to him the righteousness of Christ. That means that everything, for the person who comes to God in faith in Christ, everything Jesus did in obedience to the Father counts for you. Counts for your standing with God. But I think James is using this phrase, the righteousness of God, in a different way. He's referring not to imputation, but to sanctification. And that is the process, sanctification, the process by which we are becoming more and more like Jesus. The process of being shaped into who God wants you to be. Now it's clear from this verse, God desires for His people to grow in righteousness. Righteousness, But the other part that I think is more implicit and not explicit is this. It's not just that God desires His people to be righteous. God's people themselves desire to be righteous for His own glory. Did you see that? James is saying, don't have a short fuse because that's not getting us what we want. That doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. Namely, that doesn't Help us to please God by growing in righteousness. This is what we want. You see, this is one of the things that changes when a person is born from above. When a person becomes a Christian, is regenerated. Prior to his conversion, his desire was to do what pleased himself. He wanted to live, perhaps he wanted to live a moral life, but his his motives were not ultimately for God, but for himself. You see, you can do things for other people and still be really doing them for yourself, right? You know that from your own experience. You've done some kind deed or or said something kind, not because you were doing it uh, for the good of another, but because you were doing it for yourself. Maybe because you knew someone else was watching you and they were going to give you kudos for what you were doing. Why is it that you do the things that you do? The righteous deeds that you do. Get down to the root of why you do them, the motivation of why you do them. Do you do them because you have a desire to please the God who saved you by grace? Or do you do them because you want recognition for your service or a pat on the back? Or is it because nothing pleases you more than to know God has been pleased? God desires for His people to live righteously. Righteous lives. And this is why Christ was an acceptable sacrifice for sinners. Because He Himself had never sinned. This is called the active obedience of Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived. He submitted Himself. 
his thoughts, his words, his deeds, everything he did, even the intention and desires of his heart, were to do the will of his Father. And his wasn't just a a sort of God and me kind of righteousness. He not only loved God with all his heart, he loved his neighbor perfectly as himself. And this leads to our second truth. One aspect of this righteousness that God desires is humility toward others. Humility towards others. So look at verse 19. This is something he says you should be You should take note of, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Know this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We could probably spend an entire sermon on just these instructions, don't you think? Here James sounds a lot like the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, especially the book of Proverbs. So listen to some of these Proverbs. This wisdom from God. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. Proverbs seventeen twenty eight. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. Proverbs ten nineteen. Those who guard their lips preserve their lives, but those who speak rashly will come to ruin. Proverbs thirteen three. Or there's this one attributed to Abraham Lincoln. Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt. There's wisdom in holding your tongue, in being slow to speak and quick to listen. And it occurs to me that although all of these Proverbs appeal to us, we're still not that good at listening and keeping our mouths shut when we know we ought to. Even those of us who think we're good listeners, so I think that about myself, I think that I'm a good listener. Even we who think we're good listeners are fooling ourselves. We're really not that good at listening to others. Think about what it would really look like for you to listen well to other people. To put down your phone, to put down your Facebook machine, look someone directly in the eyes, and have a a genuine interest in what they're saying to you. But listening is even more than that. It's not simply looking someone in the eyes and hearing their words. To listen is to empathize with the person who is speaking. To put yourself in their shoes. To consider their point of view. To feel the importance of what they're saying. And you can't do that if you're contemplating what it is you're about to say. isn't that something we all do? I'm revving up to go on on my story because your story relates so well to what I'm about to tell you, right? And I can't stand it when I see that I've done that. So just know, I will do that to you probably. But know that if I see that, I won't be able to stand myself for that. We all do that. We're so quick to turn our thoughts, our minds, back to ourselves rather than to the person in front of us. James says to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And this means we are eager to hear what someone else says, to someone else has to say, and slow to put into words what we're thinking. 
Now, it doesn't mean there's never a time to speak up and to speak quickly. Sometimes you have to. If your child is running out into the street, you better speak quickly and loudly. Stop! Or tragedy will take place. But what James is getting at here is having wisdom regarding our speech. To be slow to speak means that you want to consider what you're about to say and how that will affect the other person. How the, not only what your intentions are, but how the other person will hear what you are saying. And really both of these, quickness to listen and a slowness to speak, are oriented around the other person rather than to yourself. To be a good listener, to be slow to speak, means that you orient yourself around the other rather than yourself. There's a good rule of thumb when it comes to speaking. You've probably heard it or something like it. I saw that it came from uh, Socrates. So ask these questions before you speak. First you ask, is it true? If not, then don't say it, right? It's not true. It's not worth saying. If it is true, then you can go to the next question. Is it kind? Is it kind to say it? If it's true and yes, it's kind, then you can go ahead and say it to build someone up. If it's true and not kind, then you go to the next question. Is it necessary? Because sometimes something might be true. It might not seem kind or feel kind to someone else. But if it's necessary for the other person's uh, health or well-being, then it's necessary to say it. But you see, as you're asking these questions, what you're doing is you're orienting yourself again around the other person, not around yourself about what would be good for them, about what would be helpful for them, about what would build them up. And it's the same with James's last instruction. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Often, it's because we break the first two that we end up breaking the third. We're slow to listen, we're quick to speak, and that leads us to become angry quickly. But James says that we should have a very long fuse someone should have to push a lot of buttons to get you ticked off and in particular orders because we should be slow to get angry with other people but again there's a deeper issue in all of this and that is the issue of humility all of these issues really boil down to the issue of humility It takes a truly humble person to be quick to listen. It takes a truly humble person to be slow to speak. It takes a truly humble person to to be slow to become angry. Tim Keller says, The opposite of anger isn't self-control, as we might think. The opposite of anger isn't self-control, it's humility. If you have a problem listening or speaking too soon... Or if you have a problem getting anger, angry quickly, those are not your real issues. Those are symptoms of a, a deeper issue. Your deeper, deeper level issue is your pride. The reason you can't listen, the reason you can't stop speaking is because you can't conceive of someone having something more important to say than you have. Or that you, you already know what they're going to say. The reason you're so quick to get angry is because you can't imagine someone else's needs being more important than your own. The problem in those 
cases is the idol of self. And we'd be kidding ourselves if we thought that all this didn't apply to us. Are you not too quick to get angry sometimes? Are you? Think over the past week. I can think of times I raised my voice where I got angry. Can you think of times this past week you've gotten angry? And if you answer no, then my next question is, well, do you have little children? (laughs) And it's not that that would be an excuse for getting angry. Rather, that reveals what's already present within us. You're just not in the right circumstance to get angry quickly. When if you got in that circumstance, what would be revealed is that each one of us are far too easily angered. Situations that get our blood boiling don't make something come out that wasn't already there. And so, in all of this, we have to ask ourselves some very important questions. One of them is which, one of them is this. Why do I continue to think so highly of myself? The reason I raise my voice and get angry with my children is because I think I'm worth more than them disobeying me, right? It comes down to a a pride problem. And as we ask questions like this of ourselves, why do I think so highly of myself? As we do this, we'll be moved yet again to recognize our own sins, the depths of our own sins, and be driven once again to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is where we will find true and lasting change. This is our third truth from the passage. The righteousness God desires is produced through repentance and faith. James says, Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. So James says, since anger doesn't get us to righteous living, here's what you need to do. In other words, anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God, but here's what does. Uprooting sin and receiving the gospel. Repentance and faith. If you want to learn to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, what you need isn't simply behavior modification. Now, there could be some uh, studies you could walk through that could help you become a better listener. I have no doubt about that. A better communicator, definitely. But ultimately what you need is a new heart, a changed heart. You need to be changed from the root, and then the fruit of that change will be a quickness to listen, a slowness to speak, and a slowness to become angry. You get a new heart, a transformed heart, a a, a growing heart of your own heart by the gospel through repentance and faith. So sanctification is God's work in us. According to the London Baptist Confession, we are sanctified by the Word and by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. It's a process by which the lusts of the flesh are more and more weakened and killed and we are more and more moved towards true holiness. So it's this process. In other words, we are not instantly sanctified at the moment of conversion. And there's not a time later on in your Christian life where you are automatically perfected or fully sanctified. 
It's a journey which will only be completed when we die or when the Lord returns. So in line with this, James says these two things. First, get rid of all the moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. The image that he gives here is of taking off an article of clothing and setting it aside. Put off this filthiness. I like how uh, Calvin uses the image of gardening in line with this word which has been planted in us. He says, noxious weeds are continually sprouting up. And therefore, he requires, God requires, that care should be constantly taken to eradicate them. If you ever have tended a garden, you know how true this is. Weeds are constantly sprouting up. You can never get a hold of them, it seems like. You, you tend the, the garden, and a day or two later, there are more weeds all over the place. And this is what it's like for our own hearts. Because of our original, our fallen nature, Because of Adam and Eve's sin is continually sprouting up in new places. And we must root it out. James likens our hearts to a sort of garden. We must cultivate. We must uproot weeds. If we're going to live the righteous life God desires for us, we will have to get serious about pulling up the weeds of sin in our own hearts. And one... one, Interesting thing here. Again, our our tendency is always to think individually. But this is not simply an individual endeavor. This is a community project. Uprooting sins is a community project. I remember one of the first times Rachel met my family. We were out in the garden, and my mom was trying to get everybody to pull up weeds. And I'm like, Mom, really? (laughs) This is how we're going to introduce Rachel to our family, pulling up weeds in the garden? But it is, it's a community project. It takes more than one person to tend the garden of our hearts. What this means is, one, we'll need to get to know each other. Before you can know someone's sin, you have to know them. We'll need to foster a kind of atmosphere in which this can take place. In, In our homes, in our churches, in our care groups. In individual relationships over coffee, it takes work to provide a safe and trusting atmosphere in which we can both confess our sins to one another and point out our sins to one another. It means we'll have to be willing and humble to confess our sins and be willing for others to point out sins they see in us. Are you at that point now where you would be Happy, thankful that someone would care enough about you to point out sins that they see in your life? This is what it means to be zealous, to uproot sin. The second thing James says is to humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So this idea of repentance and faith, of turning and trusting, we identified what that word was last week, the word of truth, the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus suffered and died in the place of sinners, that he bore the wrath of God, which was due to sinners, so that we could be forgiven and accepted by God. And here James says that this word has already been planted in those he's writing to, and it needs cultivation. It needs to be humbly accepted again and again. But it's not that you're losing your salvation and getting it back over and over again. Rather, it's that you have been saved and you are being saved for the glory of God. 
If you've received the gospel, you've been saved, you've been made acceptable before God, but your salvation technically won't be completed until you have been sanctified and glorified when Christ returns. This is the great aim why Christ came, to save you, to rescue you from sin and death and hell. And if you will put aside your sin and humbly accept this word, the word of Christ crucified for you, you will be saved. And the gospel will be planted in your heart and it will grow and it will change you forever. Every aspect of your life will change how you listen, how you speak. It will change even your propensity to get angry. For humility rather than pride will characterize your life. The gospel changes us. Many of you have heard the story of Rosaria Butterfield, the university English English professor who was living an openly uh, homosexual lifestyle opposed to God and was happy that way, was content to continue living that way. She had no reason to change. If anyone was unlikely to become a Christian, it was her. In fact, that's what her book is titled. Secrets of an unlikely, secret thoughts of an unlikely convert. But along her path, there was a Christian man, a pastor, who challenged her belief system. And he kept challenging her. He continued to challenge her. But along with the challenging also came love and hospitality. So he had, he and his wife had her over and her partner over for meals. And they showed love and concern and care for them. They listened to her. They were slow to speak. They were slow to become contentious. And as they continued to show the love of Christ and share the gospel of Christ, one day, Rosaria Butterfield repented of her sins and trusted in Christ. And listen to what she says. There is only one thing to do when you meet the living God. You must fall on your face and repent of your sins. Repentance is bittersweet business. Repentance is not just a conversion experience. It is the posture of the Christian. It is our daily fruit, our hourly washing, our minute-by-minute wake-up call, our reminder of God's creation, Jesus' blood, and the Holy Spirit's comfort. So this is how we change. As we fall on our faces in repentance again and again over our sins, and as we're lifted up again to receive the promises of the gospel that Jesus Christ surrendered all in His death on the cross and rose from the dead to save us, we will be changed to live a righteous life. Let's pray together. Our Father Jesus tells us In Matthew chapter 5, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. And we ask that you would give us that desire, that you would give us a greater desire for righteousness. Not that we would somehow merit your favor or earn your goodness and love for us, but because we have already been given it in Christ, because He has earned it for us. 
As we consider these specific instructions of James, we pray that you would convict us of sin. Convict us of times we have been very slow to listen. Convict us of times in our own pride we have been quick to speak and quick to get angry. And do a work in us by your word as we repent of those sins and cling yet again to Christ who loved us and gave his life for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.